is Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada on the edge of Chinatown. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. At the start of 1985, things looked good for Jimmy Ming. At 29, he was a popular manager of the Yangtze Kitchen, the family restaurant that he'd helped build from three tables on Denman Street into a thriving West End business. The family was originally from Taiwan, but had settled in Vancouver in the early 1970s. Jimmy and his three brothers graduated from King George Secondary School in the West End. Jimmy married Lily Shear, and by 1985, they had two small children, Jason Six and Eliza Five. They lived around the corner from the house that Jimmy's parents owned in Strathcona, an area of Vancouver that's nestled in between Chinatown and the downtown east side. Jimmy typically worked 12 to 15 hour days at the Yangtze Kitchen on Robson Street near Nicola. Lily learned English at night school, took care of the kids and worked in the restaurant one day a week. On Saturday, January 19, 1985, The Ming family was at the Fairyland restaurant on Fraser Street in East Vancouver, celebrating the wedding of Jimmy's younger brother John to a Vietnamese woman. The celebration hadn't gone smoothly. A fight broke out and onlookers estimated later that it involved many of the 300 mainly Vietnamese guests. Jimmy was tired and the couple left to go home around 10.30pm. The children were to spend the night with their grandparents. Sometime around midnight, criminals approached the Ming's house on Princess Avenue by the laneway. They smashed a basement window, entered and abducted the couple, who were still wearing the clothes they'd worn to the wedding. The kidnapping was discovered that afternoon when Jimmy's father, Ping Chang Ming, brought the children home and found his son and daughter-in-law missing and a ransom note on the stairs. The note asked for $700,000 and when translated into English, it read, You have a good family. You have a good business. We don't have anything. We have a lot of brothers, and you won't catch us all. We are even in the United States. You will not be the last. There will be other restaurants. Ping Chang Ming called police. The kidnapping baffled friends and neighbours of the Mings, who couldn't understand why the young couple were targeted. While the Ming family owned property and the restaurant was doing well, they were far from rich. Jimmy drove an old station wagon, and the home they'd owned for three years on the edge of Chinatown was nice but modest. Friends speculated that the kidnapping might have started with a robbery. The Mings, they said, may have been targeted because they were about to leave on holiday for Taiwan and may have had a large sum of cash handy in anticipation of a trip. 
Friends told reporters that the Mings employed some boat people. These were refugees from Vietnam and said that a Vietnamese youth gang may have been responsible. Most so were just mystified. The Mings worked up to 16 hours a day and weren't getting rich on the income from the restaurant. If somebody was looking for a big ransom, they were clearly not the right people to kidnap. In 1985, the Vancouver Police Department reported that eight gangs of Asian youth, with about 100 hardcore members in total, were involved in illegal activities that ranged from robbery and extortion to drug dealing, pimping and gambling. In response, the police department established a unit to investigate gang activity and try and curtail it. Now retired, Bob Cooper was a member of the Asian Gang Squad. Yeah, I uh, went there in uh, 1985, and I was there till 1989. And uh, basically, I was just one of the guys on the crew. We just worked all the, the gang-related crime in Chinatown. You know, we did all the extortions, shootings, stabbings, holdups. And it was uh, just basically in response to the gang activity that was going on down there and had been going on since the mid-'70s. Can you tell me what was going on in the gang scene in, in Vancouver in the 1980s when you started there? Well, when I started, they established a beat in Chinatown in about 1973, I think. And, you know, just in response, the, the gang stuff was just starting out. And it was just a, a group of kids. They, they were all immigrants from Hong Kong. And uh, basically, it started out that they all played soccer together. And then, I don't know, the devil makes work for idle hands or something. But they got into penny ante extortion, protection money from restaurants and that kind of thing. So they set up a walking beat in response to that. And our intelligence unit at the time put one guy on it full-time up there just to coordinate the intelligence that was coming from patrol, and particularly the guys walking Chinatown, just identifying gang members, who they were, who they associated with, and that, that sort of thing. And then it just grew from there. In the 1980s, it really ramped up and with the exodus of refugees from Vietnam, a lot of them arrived here, and you saw uh, groups like the Viet Cheng form. They were mainly ethnic Chinese, but they were all from Vietnam, and they were certainly a lot more dangerous than the uh, traditional groups. When did you see your first kidnapping? We may have had some in the 70s, but certainly we had some in the 1980s. But they had a they had a good success rate with these things because the vulnerable point was always at the money drop. You know, they had to pick the money up. And in just about every case except, I believe, for the Mings, they did rescue the people and they always got the people that did it. You know, once they realized that, you know, the exposure just wasn't worth the risk of prison sentences and that sort of thing, uh, basically it just dropped off the map. Any idea how many kidnappings, you know, were, were done as a form of extortion? Was it, you know, a handful? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It was. It was always. It was always extortion. Uh, they targeted people that they believed had money. But the Mings didn't really have money. There were always rumors down there. Chinatown was just the biggest rumor mill. They they owned this really successful restaurant on Robson Street, so the belief was that the family did have a lot of money, and they would certainly pay to get the you know the son and the daughter-in-law back. Terry Gould, an investigative journalist and author, was a substitute teacher at Britannia Secondary School in East Vancouver two years after the Ming case hit the front pages. In his book, Paper Fan, The Hunt for Triad Gangster Stephen Wong, he writes that it was widely known to neighbourhood kids that Chinese businesses near the school were paying protection money 
and those who refused were punished. In his book, Gould says the police suspected that the murder of Jimmy and Lily Ming may have been linked to problems that Jimmy's father, Ping Chang Ming, was having with the triads back in Taiwan. Rumours in the Asian underworld, wrote Gould, indicated that the Viet Ching gang, named after a slang term used to refer to Vietnamese of Chinese descent, were hired to kill the Mings as retribution, and the $700,000 ransom was merely an extra windfall. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. Somehow, the kidnappers found out that Ping Chang Ming had talked to police and they sent a letter demanding an apology. The letter prompted a series of messages in local Chinese newspapers apologising for angering the kidnappers and pleading for the lives of the missing Mings. The first ad ran on February 13th and then every day for a week in both the Chinese Times and the Chinese Voice. When translated from Chinese, it read, Mr Chin, last time I was wrong, please forgive me. We will do according to your wish. You demand too much. I had the heart but not the strength. Hope you will reconsider. On March 3rd, 42 days had passed since Ping Chang had last spoken to his son and daughter-in-law. He ran more ads pleading with the kidnappers for proof that the couple was still alive and telling them about the problems he was having raising the ransom money. This is another of the notes. Mr Wong, your demand is acceptable. I really want to cooperate with you deep in my heart. You make the plans for what you want me to do, but without a chance to talk to you, it's difficult. Please think, in the newspapers, it's really hard to explain. I am willing to give you the money, but understand my hardship. Asking the bank for money, you have to have a good reason. The house is already mortgaged, but that's not enough. Please, can I personally speak to my son and his wife? Get them individually to write a letter so I can see. Please be kind and think it over. The letter was signed by Mr Yang, the codename demanded by the kidnappers. Police called the request for an apology psychological pressure and said that the demand for $700,000 was completely unrealistic and exorbitant. I checked in with the inflation calculator and in today's dollars, that $700,000 would be close to $1.8 million. The Minks attempted to sell the restaurant to raise the ransom but as Harry Ming, the youngest brother, later told a reporter, even if they'd sold the restaurant and everything else they'd owned, they couldn't hope to raise that kind of cash. The kidnappers telephoned the father once from Victoria and mailed four notes to the restaurant. Hoping that the Mings were still alive, police continued to try and negotiate with the kidnappers through the media. 
But none of the notes provided any direction of where to drop the ransom money or even a way to move forward. One note threatened other members of the Ming family. It said, If you want to see your son again, you'll come up with the money, or else eventually your sons will be killed one by one. The content of the notes led police to suspect that the kidnapping had been the work of one of the Asian youth gangs, terrorising East Vancouver. A large influx of Vietnamese refugees entered Canada in the early 1980s. With no English, little education, few meaningful career prospects and no family to support them, the young people among these refugees were perfect recruits for the Asian gangs. In January 1987, a rash of armed robberies ended with the shooting of a 14-year-old member of the Lotus Gang in the Golden Princess Theatre now the Rio Theatre, on East Broadway. Tony Hong was watching all the wrong clues with friends when he was shot in the head by a 16-year-old member of the Viet Ching gang. Bob Cooper of the Asian Gang Squad said gangs often use teenagers to carry out the killings because of the lighter sentences that they'd receive if they were caught and because they were the lowest rung on the organised crime ladder. You mentioned in the paper that the gangs used teenagers to do the shootings. Was that fairly common? Yeah. What we noticed was typically the adult would pass the gun to a juvenile in the belief that they would get next to nothing, you know, which minimized the risk for them. Mm. And one case I worked uh, was the Golden Princess theater shootings. A kid named Tony Hong was sitting in the theater, and he was a member of the Lotus Gang. They were at odds with the Viet Ching at the time. And somebody spotted him in the theater, you know, uh, phoned somebody, a uh, senior Viet Ching member arrived, met a 14-year-old, passed the gun to William. William walked in, walked right up to the kid and point blank shot him right in the face. He was using the old police ammunition that we'd been issued in the 1970s that sometimes wouldn't break a car window. And the kid was lucky. Uh, it hit him in the forehead, the bullet glanced down into his eye, basically blew his eye out, but he survived. William, who had moved to Canada with his family in 1976, said in court that he was working his way into the gang through shoplifting, vandalism and swinging a baseball bat in fights with rival gangs. The full price of admission was to shoot a rival gang member. He was told that the gang members would intimidate any witnesses from the theatre into not testifying against him, and he would get three years at most. He would be able to learn English while in jail. Unfortunately for William, his case was moved up to adult court. The gang members reneged on their promises, and he was sentenced to eight years and then deported back to Hong Kong. It was a major win for police, and it sent a message to the gangs that the practice of using teenagers to do the killings would not be tolerated. A story in the Globe and Mail in March 1985 said that some Vancouver gangs had up to 80 members, usually aged between 15 and 25. They used baseball bats, iron bars, machetes, cleavers and knives, and later guns. According to the story, they'd been terrorising the Vancouver East Side and its 100,000 residents for months. The Lotus, Red Eagles and Viet Ching gangs were identified as the most criminally active. 
The Viet Ching became active in Vancouver around 1982. The gang was extremely aggressive in their attempts to take over traditional Chinatown rackets of extortion, burglary, gambling and loan sharking, and this put them in direct competition with the Lotus and the Red Eagles. Gang problems had been growing for years. Two years before the Ming kidnapping, Chinese engineer Johnson Ting was abducted by gang members and held captive for six days while his wife tried to raise $300,000. Ting was freed after police raided a Kingsway motel room and rescued him. I know you've been out of it for a few years, but it must be a huge difference from the gangs now to what you were seeing back then, is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we used to get violent incidents occurring in restaurants because that's how they terrorized people. Uh, there was one at a bakery on Main Street between 8th and Broadway. Cam's Bakery, I think it was. And uh, the Red Eagles went in, and I forget who the other group was, but they just walked right in there with machetes, walked up to these guys sitting in a booth and just started hacking at them. Wow. And, you know, they, they not only with machetes, yeah. You know, so the result was they got the people they were after, but they also terrorized everybody that was in the place. You know, and there were uh, shootings like the Hot Pot restaurant at uh, 24th and Canby. A kid named Ricky something was sitting in there, and I believe it was the Red Eagles walked in, and one of them walked up and just shot him in the head as he was sitting at the table. Walked out the back, and he shot a security guard who almost died. Now, I'm fascinated by the machetes. Was that because they couldn't get guns? Guns weren't as prevalent, and you would get a lot less if you were caught with a machete. We we didn't see a lot of guns in the earlier days, but certainly when I was there in the mid to late 80s, guns became much more common. You know, we were making gun arrests all the time. Seven weeks after the Mings went missing, their bodies were found at the bottom of an embankment in dense bush off the Squamish Highway between Porter Cove and Lions Bay. This would be about 40 kilometres from their home where they were taken. An autopsy showed that the couple were murdered shortly after they were abducted from their house or perhaps even inside their house and they'd been strangled. According to the Squamish Times, the highway had become a popular location to dump bodies. Over the previous decade, 10 bodies had been found between Horseshoe Bay and Squamish. BC Attorney General Brian Smith held a press conference to say that solving the kidnapping and murder of Jimmy and Lily Ming and breaking up Asian youth gangs were the top law enforcement priorities. The Vancouver Police Department's Asian Gang Squad would be concentrating on the activities of the Red Eagles, the Lotus Gang and the Viet Ching. Mayor Mike Harcourt branded Vietnamese gangs as public enemy number one and urged gang members to get out of Vancouver before the authorities chased them out. The mayor's tough-talking rhetoric did little to appease the citizens of Vancouver and the Vietnamese community objected to being targeted this way. Some of them took great offence and demonstrated the following day. Gang members usually don't enjoy long lives. They would often take care of any grievances themselves rather than go to police. Robert Gordon, a professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University, 
who studies Asian gangs in Vancouver, calls this the extrajudicial resolution method. Dr Gordon thinks the Mings could have been the victims of a home invasion that went badly. Kidnappings are messy and require a great deal of organisation, he says. More likely, the criminals saw an opportunity to make money from a ransom and decided to extort the family after the couple was already dead. Then you realise because it's that these various groups, these organisations are in it for the money and whatever will yield easy cash and untraceable cash is, is a fair target. Being able to set a group of people into what we would now refer to as a home invasion and hold them prisoner there and demand that they pass it with valuables. And we don't want any of your gold or jewellery unless it's ingots. But we, what we want is usable cash. That sort of suggests a bunch of entrepreneurs who thought they were onto some good thing and that they would be successful in extracting $700,000. Well, you know what? That makes sense because one of the theories was that they were planning to go away to Taiwan and there might be a lot of cash hanging around the house. A home invasion that went wrong. Yeah, and then they decided to, they were dead anyway, maybe extort some more money from the family. That, that's a possibility, yeah. If the police are not forthcoming with information about those kinds of hypotheses, then you know, that suggests that they're still, they've still got the file open uh, 30 years later and they're hoping there'll be some yield because the individual's responsible. And they'll probably have a fairly good idea who it is, but the individual's responsible are still around or still arrestable, and they're hoping that there'll be some closure at a later date. Or they're in jail for something else. Or yeah. dead, that's more yeah. likely. They also seem to be bumping each other off a lot. It's they do, yes, it's, uh, at least they used to. That runs in waves. They certainly were doing that in the mid to late 80s and into the early 90s. They were busy using extrajudicial dispute resolution methods, usually creeping up to somebody sitting in a car in traffic or in a parking lot or somewhere like that and just blowing the brains out, oftentimes using a turnip, which is a very effective silencer. One of the most effective forms of silencing pistol shot, which is low velocity, is by using a turnip. So looking at the restaurant who hired boat people, the, the theory is not that they might have looked quite rich to them and knowing that they were going to yeah. on holidays and having cash. Maybe um, there's money around. There's yeah. money in this restaurant. There's money probably stashed in the house. I don't know if you know very much about Chinese culture and Vietnamese culture, there's not a huge amount of faith in financial institutions. So a lot of the asset would be held in cash and or gold. When the case was re-looked at again in the late 1990s, police had the ransom notes tested for DNA. They found a match to a gang member who they discovered was dead. While he could have just been the messenger and not necessarily directly involved in the murders, police likely have a good idea of which gang was responsible for the Mings. When it comes to cases that Bob Cooper would like to see solved, the Mings are on top of his list. I'm just going to ask you, what, what's the um, one unsolved case you worked on that really haunts you? I didn't have a big part in the Mings, but I did have a part. That one really bothered all mm. of us. Mm-hmm. Just because, you, you know, the victims are totally innocent. I mean, 90% of the cases we got, they were they were gangsters and everything. You, you worked the case as hard as you could because up there you lived and died by your clearance rate. Mm-hmm. You know, people would say, well, we didn't care about murdered prostitutes. Well, that was nonsense. We we cared about everybody. If 
for nothing else but our own survival. Right. And that was probably the one that bothers everybody the most. You know, just this young couple in the place they're supposed to feel safe. And, you know, they, these people break into their house at, in the middle of the night, take them out, strangle them, and just dump their bodies. I mean, it's just, yeah, we had a lot of stuff. We just never had quite enough. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Thanks to everyone who bought me a coffee this week. It's very much appreciated. Cold Case Canada is based on original research that I conducted for my book, Cold Case Vancouver, the city's most baffling unsolved murders. If you'd like to join in the conversation about this and other murders, check out my Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada, and please subscribe to the podcast. You can find more information, photos and show notes on my website, evelazarus.com. I'm going to leave you with a promo for my first podcast, Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. I'm Eve Lazarus and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934 there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher.